Thanks for joining us on the MBP, the Micah Brown Podcast. I'm your host, Micah Brown, and here I want to connect you to some interesting people in an intentional way. We do that by focusing on two main things. One, focusing on the person. Everybody goes through stuff. We all have obstacles that we face. Somebody that you may walk past on a daily basis may actually be one of those incredible people and you just don't know it yet. A lot of times as Americans, we want to jump straight to what do you do for a living? And we skip right past all the personal stuff that we've been through. A lot of times we want to label that as unprofessional and I would beg to differ. I think that by being more personal, being more intentional with our conversations, we can actually get a lot more accomplished holistically as human beings. So that's what we try to focus on here. Anybody that I interview, I want to ask what obstacles they've overcome and how it's affected them. Sometimes we'll just jump straight into it without asking the actual question. Either way, when you listen to an interview on this podcast, I want you to have met somebody in an intentional way. And the second part, get to know what they do as a profession. It is part of their life after all, so why not get to know what they do? But we don't start there. We will end there. And as many of our people that we get to interview, you'll see, they actually do some pretty incredible stuff. And we don't want to miss out on that either. I hope you enjoy the show. If you do, a fantastic way to support would be to use that Audible free trial by going to audibletrial.com forward slash MBP. That's audibletrial.com forward slash MBP. That'll get you a free 30-day subscription to Audible for free 99 And if you want to keep going after that, that's up to you. Either way, that will help out this podcast continue to truck on forward, paying for all sorts of things behind the scenes that I didn't realize cost money when starting this whole thing. But they do. Nonetheless, we appreciate you guys uh, for helping us out. Hope you enjoyed the podcast. Let's get to it. On today's episode, I have the pleasure of interviewing Dr. Janelle McCauley. She is a combat veteran who served 20 years in the U.S. Air Force as a pilot, commander, Special Operations Consultant, International Diplomat, and Professionalism Instructor. With her innovative leadership style, she was the first leader to introduce mindfulness as a proactive performance strategy within the United States military. Throughout her career, she gained experience leading and building teams, designing and implementing complex organizational change, and creating innovative solutions to optimize the human weapon system when operating in rugged and high-stress environments. With over 3,000 flying hours in the C-21, C-130, and KC-10, and extensive education in performance and wellness, she specializes in high performance under stress with a holistic approach. She currently serves as a leadership and human performance consultant for the DOD, that's Department of Defense, government sector, and in corporate America. She is the co-founder of Warrior's Edge, a high-performance mindset training program she developed with Pete Carroll of the Seattle Seahawks, and high-performance sports psychologist, Dr. Michael Gervais. Dr. McCauley is a graduate of the U.S. Air Force Academy, has a master's degree in kinesiology from the Pennsylvania State University, and a PhD with work in the field of strategic health and human performance. She is a certified wellness educator, yoga instructor, and holds a certificate in plant-based nutrition. So she's got just a few things going on, but there's still more. Dr. McCauley is a TEDx speaker, military spouse, and mother of two who is on a mission to help individuals excel in high-stress and rugged environments by showing them how to lean into each moment to find their best selves. Without anything else to add, buckle in. This is a great episode. Here is my interview with Dr. Janelle McCauley. Dr. McCauley, I appreciate you being on this episode of the Micah Brown Podcast. How are you doing today? 
I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to have this conversation with you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Um, I know you've been moving, so I'm sure having, having a little bit of settledness to your life is probably good right now. It's great. It's great. My husband just retired from the Air Force. I had retired two years ago, and now it was his turn to retire. And it was unfortunate that he had a little bit of a different experience than I did because of the yep. COVID-19 crisis we're kind of in. Um, but it was still nonetheless, nonetheless really meaningful. My daughter sang the national anthem. My son said oh, the nice. events. They each wrote letters to their dad. And um, my daughter made this really cool video. And so it was meaningful um, in its own way. And uh, we started this next chapter of, reti you know, hashtag retired life, if you want to call it that. <laughs> Um, where we're living on a lake and we're just uh, enjoying the family time that, you know, we, I think we really yearned for most of our military careers because they are pr pretty demanding. And so now we have a lot of freedom and flexibility to choose what we do, when we do it, how we do it. And that's just <laughs> really great for our family. That's so good. I know being in the military, kind of everything is decided for you or you're told you have to be here at this time and you have to go to this place at that time. So now not being under that umbrella for both of you, I'm sure that's got to be somewhat relieving, even though it's all you've pretty much known your professional life. Exactly. You know, the military is a great organization in that, you know, under one you know, with one team, I was able to be a leader, be a technical expert as a pilot, um, to experience, you know, higher level education in many ways, to, you know, travel the world. And so it offers you a lot of opportunity. But at the same time, you do give up a lot of freedom and flexibility with respect to, you know, where you're going to live, who you're going to work for, sure. work with. Um, yeah you know, when you're going to deploy and, you know, when you're going to be home and, and away. And, and so I think that that's what we're most looking forward to in this next chapter is having more of a say in the direction of our lives. And, and, you know, we're going to miss the service, of course, like that is what sure. both of us to not only join the military, but to stay, you know, to be part of something bigger than ourselves and having that greater purpose, which I think we both fulfilled, you know, with, tw I did 20, my husband did 22 years. And um, so now it's just time to find a new way to give back to our communities. That's great. I, I have a lot of respect for military people and there have been many times where I think in a past life I should have made a, a choice to go into the military. Just I read too much about military experiences. I taught U.S. history. I listen to the Jocko podcast. so I'm constantly hearing about Navy SEAL stuff and I'm just thinking I feel like I missed a big chunk of myself <laughs> by not going into the military. So that's just my own personal opinion. I, I think it would be really cool to be a part of the military, but now I feel like I've kind of missed that. Yeah. Yeah, that happens sometimes. I, I do talk to a lot of people that that say, gosh, I really, you know, wish that maybe I would have made those choices. But there's, you know, a lot of other, you know, occupations or ways. I mean, even being a t history teacher, right? Like that you're kind of in that same service space. And I know you might ask me later about this, but, you know, I felt a call to serve in some way, shape or form when I was young, just based on you know, my family relationships, my dad was a police officer, my mom was a nurse, I had an uncle and two grandfathers that were all in the Marine Corps. And so I knew that in some way, shape or form, I wanted to, you know, serve or uh, assist the public in some way. And um, the military just kind of ended up and I'll, I'll get into that story if you want me to, like yeah. how 
ended up at the Air Force Academy, but, um, you know, that ended up to be the right fit for me. And then, you know, many people just touch and go through the military and use it as an opportunity to gain experience, to gain new skill sets, to, you know, some people need a little kick in the rear, right, of <laughs> some discipline in their yeah. life. Um, Organization, too. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And, and that's okay too. Like nobody has to make it a career, you know, it's not, it doesn't have to be this 20 plus year, um, life of service in that capacity for certain people. You know, I've seen many of those that I led that would just be in the service for five or six years and go on to contribute in, you know, lots of great ways to, to our nation as a whole. And so, um, you know, you know, everyone kind of is on their own path and their own journey. Um, yeah. We're very grateful for our experience um, in the military, of course. Well, why don't you give us a little bit of your background? I know you're kind of touching on some aspects. Obviously, a big chunk is 20 plus years being in the military. But maybe even some of your background growing up, um, you've already mentioned your dad, other members of your family being in the military. So give us as brief as you want, as much as you want, just some background Growing up, meeting Chris, where did you meet him? Did you meet him at the Air Force Academy or did you meet him in the Air Force and all, all of that? For sure. So my story really starts, I think, with the impact my dad had on me when I was a young girl. And, you know, I think this is a great lesson for a lot of parents out there. You know, how we message to our children is vitally important. You know, when I was younger, my dad used to tell anybody that would listen, like if we would run into someone he knew or just started talking to a stranger, he would always mention, hey, this is my daughter, Janelle, and someday she's going to grow up to be a combat pilot or a submarine warfare commander. And <laughs> the same story point that he would always tell every, all the time. And so it was just this, this message, right, in my head that like, well, wait, what is a combat pilot? And what is a submarine warfare commander? And um, what, what can I be in the future? And at the time, this is like the early 80s. And those jobs weren't even open to women. But I didn't know that, right? So I just kind of grew up thinking, well, cool, I could do that. And I would see the look in strangers faces when my dad would say that, like, wow, you know, this small girl is going to grow up and, and do these great things. And so I think I always was inspired to think about how I can do something extraordinary and that there weren't any barriers, right? Like I didn't realize that society was putting barriers on my potential as a woman. And so I kind of grew up thinking that there weren't barriers and that's just very powerful for how you not only think of yourself and what your potential is in the future, but how you build confidence um, how, you know, you see yourself within society, especially if you're, you know, whether that's some type of minority, you know, using that kind of messaging, I think is, is very powerful. So that's really where my, I guess, desire to do something extraordinary and different with my life came from was that constant messaging by my dad when I was younger. And you know, yeah, it was, it really was. And, and the idea of like this growth mindset of, um, you know, focusing not necessarily on end results, but like the process of getting there was something that I kind of grew up with. Um, my dad gave me a lot of drive, a lot of motivation, a lot of commitment, um, which then, you know, led me to, I, my uncle would take me to the air shows and I'd see pilots. And, you know, I think every time someone said something like, oh, Janelle couldn't do that. It 
motivated me to want it even more, right? Like I'm one of those people, like if you put a no in front of me, I'm going right. to say yes. That's why I'm shaking my head because I'm the exact same. Are you an only child, youngest, oldest? I'm the oldest of two. I have a younger brother. Okay. I thought it was only a youngest child thing, but when people tell me no, I'm like, okay, sounds like a challenge. Right. It does. It kind of gives you that extra motivation, especially when I grew up with this idea of like, I mean, competitiveness was a big part of my youth as well. Um, my parents instilled a lot of that into me. And so, you know, I always wanted to prove others wrong, um, you know, like that their expectations of me was was they weren't accurate um, because I was you know, if you can imagine, I was a dancer, a baton twirler, like that was the main um, competitive sport I did in my youth. Like I would go to Notre Dame University every summer and compete in the national baton twirling championships. And, awesome. you know, I was a state and regional champion and, you know, competed very well at the national level. And I, you know, it was just when people would look at me, they're like, what, you're going to be a combat pilot or going to go to the Air Force Academy like it just was something that was so different especially at that time right like we right. definitely had these gender roles and these expectations of what women or men would do and I was filling like the stereotype of the young girl right being into very girly things but then wanting to have this career in a male-dominated field and um, so I think it threw people for a loop a lot. And I, I distinctly remember having a bunch of my male high school friends over at our house one time. And my dad was telling them how I was going to go to the Air Force Academy. He puts in this video of like, you know, what basic training was like, everybody marching and wearing uniforms and, you know, uh, jumping out of airplanes. And they were like, no way could Janelle ever do that. <laughs> like, I distinctly remember Thanks for the encouragement, guys. You know what? Like, there's no, and I was like, you better believe I'm going to do it. And so even in those hard moments when I was in basic training and I was like, this is really not fun. <laughs> you know, like, like I was digging deep for that, you know, that competitiveness inside of me to be like, well, I'm not going to quit, you know, like I'm going to accomplish this goal. Um, and right or wrong, right. Where my motivation came from, like that, that really drove me. And, and, you know, a lot of my story, and I described this in my TED talk, there are a lot of good things that came out of how I was raised and that competitiveness and that drive that I had. But I like to, to say now, as I reflect back on my journey, it, it really was incomplete. Like the, mm -hmm. the one side that I was never taught was this restore, recover, like I was always in the hustle. Right. And, and that's really where I ran my career for most of the first probably 10 to 15 years was I was in the hustle and it's exhausting and both mentally, emotionally, physically. Um, and when I really started to look at how I wanted to lead, lead my life and what I was missing, because what I really was missing was joy in the journey. Mm. I found that, you know, I was I was never taught how to shape my mindset to do the things I was going to do. Um, and so I know we can kind of get into that a, a little bit later, but that, you know, just taking my childhood, there were a lot of great things about it, but like, like I said, it was incomplete and in that I wasn't building a pathway for sustainable high performance. I was building this like temporary, you know, and this is what most of us do, right? We're like, we're in the hustle, we're, we're busy, we're, I like to think we have this, or I call our environment we live in in our culture today, competitive stress environment. 
where accurate <laughs> we like compete with how busy we are we over schedule our children and then parents are like well what activities are your kids in what activities are you know it's like this competitiveness we have with my kids busier than your kid um i saw that as a teacher so i definitely agree right we and it's a cultural thing because mm -hmm. if you're doing it a different way you somehow feel like you're not as valued or your child is not as valued or you're doing something wrong because everybody else is in that hustle. And so it's I just grown up peer pressure. That's all it is. It is. It really is. Right. It, yeah. it really Got to shrug it off. It's FOPO <laughs> as we would call it. Yeah, exactly. Fear of other people's opinions, right. Yep. That you're not doing things right. Um, but yeah, but back to, you know, kind of my journey, I ended up in, um, at the, or at the Air Force Academy and, you know, I've met some of my best friends in the world because of that experience, you know, that shared experience we had together. I met my husband there. Um, and then we ended up kind of doing our own thing right after we graduated from the Air Force Academy. A lot of people get married, you know, right after at graduation day. And we did our own thing for a year and just made sure that that was the direction we wanted to go. But we did get married pretty young um, right after, uh, right before I started pilot training. And, um, then we took off on these 20 year careers. And like I said, they were great because we got to do so many different things within one organization. I mean, I picked up, um, three different degrees, one of which turned into a PhD, um, as well as I've got to fly some amazing aircraft, lead some amazing people. And, um, you know, like I said in the beginning, anytime even the Air Force would tell me no for something, I found my way around to get to yes, um, to kind of have the experience I wanted out, and out of those 20 years. Something interesting to me, and uh, I don't know if you knew this, I, had a, I have an undergrad in leadership. So I'm always interested in how people really develop prior to becoming that leader that we then study. And one of the common factors I find is what you're explaining, which is people tell them, no, you can't do this, or you're wrong because no one's done that before, or here's why you're going to fail. But then the people who push through that and still get to the goal they're trying to achieve or whatever it may be, they all of a sudden, they're the, the remarkable person. They're the one that we herald as a hero, but you forget that some of those people singing your praises were the same people that were just telling you years ago, you couldn't do it. So to me, there's this weird blind uh, dichotomy of how people interact with others trying to achieve big things. So that's always been unique to me about really great people. And it sounds like in your story, you were experiencing some of that yourself. Oh, for sure. Um, I mean, most of my career, I was the only woman in many of the courses I would take, um, I was the only woman in my pilot training class, you know, so out of 40 pilots that were being trained, I was the only woman. Um, and then, you know, when I was a commander, so then that's like at the beginning of my career and then across my career, obviously I, I had a lot of that. And then at the very end of my career, when I was commanding, I was the only female commander um, on the leadership team at my base out of 30 leaders. And so um, that, prove challenging in and of itself. Um, and then on top of it, because I was, and this is what my peers have used to describe me before, bold or unconventional with my, my leadership style, right? Because it was different. It was against the norm. And when you're in something like the military, which is very hierarchical, 
it's very much everybody does it the same way because there's standards and rules and regulations and you know everyone kind of operates within this the same area for how they lead and then I kind of came in and just you know like flipped it and I never asked for permission in many of the things (laughs) I've heard this from some of your other talks (laughs) right like I just did it (laughs) I did because I figured it was easier for them to tell me no if I asked for permission than if I just started doing that, doing it and then prove that it worked and then having them try to to convince me otherwise, right? Or to go back on it after I'd already started. And so that's really kind of how I operated. And I've been throughout my journey, you know, when I had my uh, epiphany and kind of my mid-career point where I got my PhD and I started studying why life has to be so hard and how I could fix it for myself. (laughs) I mean, really my PhD was very, like it was out of self necessity. Like I knew I needed an answer to that question. I needed an answer to how I could make it to the 20 year point of my career and not lose myself or my health or my relationships, like in the process of accelerating my professional success. And, and I knew if I solved that problem for me, I could solve it for a whole bunch of other people that I knew were struggling with the same things I was struggling with. And most of that was, I never enjoyed success when I was experiencing it because I was so worried about what was gonna happen next or I was catastrophizing in my mind about what I was failing at or what I was doing wrong or what I wasn't, the expectations I wasn't meeting because that's how powerful our minds are with this idea of cognitive elaboration and storytelling and how that was serving me, right? It wasn't serving me personally or professionally and I was missing out on the opportunity to be my best. And um, yeah, so I really wanted to deep dive into that study and then use it, use whatever I learned to help others. And that's really what set me on the path that I'm on now where I just want to help as many people as possible find sustainable high performance with corresponding joy and happiness in their lives. Yeah, and one of the things that I've noticed, um, our, our society is shifting to being a little bit more accepting to words like that and verbiage like that and saying, you know, that's actually not a bad thing. That's actually not something we should disregard. We should actually embrace enjoying what we're doing. Uh, so I, I love that you've been on that path. As you progress into your career, you know, what was it like once you introduced kids to the mix? Uh, was that before or after your PhD? How did that affect you still having a career and being mom and being a parent? And then, you know, how did that kind of affect things and affect trajectory, if at all? Um, I know that nowadays you've posted things that I've read about how you really are trying to help mold your kids. And uh, we can talk about this in a little bit, but the, the no technology days and stuff like that. So in the moment when you had kids, how did that affect things? That's it. That's a great question. Um, real quick on your comment about joy and, yeah. and people. Um, I think that ties to the competitive stress problem is that we see joy and happiness is almost like a weakness, right? Like, well, if I'm too happy, then that means I'm not hustling hard enough or I'm not right. Like, and that goes back yep. to the cultural issues that we're facing right now. Um, if I'm smiling, so, I'm not working hard enough. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And so we'll quick side story, cause this is a true story. One morning when I walked into my morning meeting with my peers, right? It was like the commander's meeting. Of course, I'm the only woman at the table and everyone's sitting there telling their weekend story, right? Cause it's Monday morning. 
And I overhear one guy saying, oh my gosh, like I worked on performance reports all day Saturday. I didn't get a Saturday. Um, and then, you know, I have a sick kid at home, so I didn't get any sleep last night and I barely had time to grab breakfast as I walked out. Um, you know, but I'm still here to like be a badass and start my day. And then the next guy's like, well, let me tell you something. Like I worked all day. <laughs> yeah, let me one up you. I worked all day Saturday and Sunday on performance reports. I've got two sick kids. Like and I didn't even sleep. But yeah, exactly. Like <laughs> just going on, and then the next guy, and the next, and there, and then I just sat there and I was like, you know, I had a great weekend. I spent it with my kids. Um, you know, their their dad is stationed two thousand miles away from me, so I make sure I get all my work done during the week so that I can hang out with them on the weekend. I slept great. Everyone's healthy. I've got my yummy green smoothie, like ready for the day, and everybody literally looked at me like uh, you're obviously not working hard enough. And it just really shocked me that when you do things right, right? Like it, when you're trying to really, it's really do the right thing for yourself, for your family, for the people you lead, like setting that good example and not being in work all weekend. Um, people don't value it. They think that yeah. you're less than, or you're not a hard worker. And that is what is wrong culturally is because it's not just about the amount of time you put into the work you do. It's the quality. And we don't measure that enough. I don't think, especially across leadership, right? Because what do you measure with leadership? And so it's really easy to say, oh, well, so-and-so is always in the office. So that must mean they're a really great leader. And that doesn't necessarily equate to your leadership skills and you know going back to feeling good one of the um one of the biggest critiques i got one time from one of my peers he said something to me we're sitting again at one of these tables and he goes you know your leadership just makes people feel good and i think he meant it as a criticism right like he was trying yeah. to make this fly comment to me and i actually like looked and i was like oh my gosh thank you for saying that that means so much <laughs> I hope that my leadership makes people feel good because what else is the point, right? Like if I make them feel horrible or I make them feel like, you know, I'm toxic or like I'm a sleeve driver or my example is that they have to work every weekend, then no one's going to want to be me. Yeah. Right. And we as leaders should want people to look up and be like, man, I hope I can be a leader someday. But that's, that's the problem. I think in the military is people look at most leaders and think, not that they don't necessarily want the job or the leadership, but they don't want the life that comes with it. And accurate. that was my goal is I wanted people to look at my life as a leader and say, wow, she has kids and she has like a good marriage and she's happy, <laughs> you know, not miserable all the time so that they would want to be me. Like, I think that's, that was part of my job as a leader, right? I want them to want to, to have the job I have. Um, and I don't think enough leaders look at it from that perspective. So anyway, I know that was a sidebar. <laughs> I, well, I think it kind of answers more of the question of what was your background and, it, you know, what did you have to deal with, which I think segues perfectly into the, the next question, because I feel like you've already kind of touched on these uh, and maybe you can just point back and say that was one of them and that was one of them. But what obstacles or events in your life have most shaped your character and how? Of course, in this question, the how is kind of the more important, but what events have most shaped your character? It's, and what I meant by, you sound like you've already mentioned some of them, being the only woman at the table, having those experiences of what they're all talking about, and then you going, 
I actually had a pretty solid weekend. <laughs> I did all this stuff with my kids. I'm ready to go on this Monday morning. Let's do it while they're operating on empty. Right. You know, I mean, growing up in my formative years with my dad's influence was, had a big impact on my life. Um, the, the other thing I think a lot of people don't know about me is um, right after I joined and started at the Air Force Academy, I was two days post basic training and I broke my femur. Um, like literally my femur bone, right? Biggest, strongest bone in your body cracks in half. <laughs> yeah, I was like a, I was 17 at the time. So there were so many complications with respect to that because this is before cell phones. Like they couldn't get a hold of my parents. Oh, man. Um, I, they couldn't give me medication because I was technically a minor until they got a hold oh. of my parents. It was, it was really dramatic. Um, so in the end, I spent the first like six weeks of my military career at the Air Force Academy living in the hospital. Um, I went from being told you're 17, your femur broke, you obviously have some sort of cancer, bone tumor or something. What? Really? Yeah, like they couldn't figure out, I was in traction for two weeks while they even just tried to figure out what was going on and why this bone broke and what was um, the cause. And so that was very scary. I was told by the doctors at the time, I eventually had a femoral rotting. So they put a rod from my knee to my hip and then screws in my hip and screws in my knee just so that I could, because it was either that or like a six month body cast. I mean, that was back then, like they're the only options. Um, and what I found was that I was being told, oh, you'll never fly airplanes. Um, you'll probably never run. Um, or run right, you'll probably never be able to bend in certain ways and do certain things with your with your hip and your leg. And this is 17, like I was just about to start my career in my life. And um, that is that was probably a point in my life where it was hard, right, mentally to kind of like get through it. But I remember thinking to myself, like, and this is where that whole, like when someone tells you no, you find a way to yes. I think that's where that and that was instilled in me because all these people were telling me, and these doctors too were saying, you're never going to do this. You're never going to do that. And I decided I'm not going to let them write my story. Right. I'm not going to let someone else. They don't hold the pen. Right. Tell my narrative. Like I get to decide all those things. And so that's when I was, you know, and, and I went to physical therapy and I had these great physical therapists that helped me get to the point where I was running. And I obviously did get to be a pilot and do things. Do I have some issues with my hip? Sure. I do just because of the scar tissue and like the damage that was done, but it has not never, um, you know, it is, it has never impacted my ability to do the things I want to do in, with my life. And Which um, for those listening, I know the rest of the story and you're a yoga instructor now. So the fact that they told you, you're not going to be flexible, you're not going to be able to move the right way, eh, jokes on them. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> so I think that there's something, you know, in those experiences, you know, kind of define us and they put you at that crossroads where you can make a choice to let it mm -hmm you know, I could have let them tell me and get that in my head that I am never going to do these things. And I could have quit trying. Um, or you can use those moments to motivate yourself. And I had a lot of great physical therapists. It's really what drove me to be a biology major. Um, I actually had an opportunity, you know, I wanted to be a doctor because I wanted to help people. And so I was a biology major, but then I realized, well, you can't go to medical school and be a pilot, right? You had to kind of choose. 
And I always realized, well, I can always go back and become a doctor. I, this might be my only chance to be a pilot. So I chose to, to go the flying route first. And then eventually I did get my PhD, a little bit different <laughs> kind of doctor than I think I originally might've thought of for myself. But, um, you know, I eventually got to that goal. <laughs> I mean, you're still alive. You can still go back and be a doctor. You got time. It's fine. Yeah. <laughs> You've already got one PhD. What's an MD, you know? Just add it to the list. I, I like to explain people as, follow me here. This is a middle school teacher's metaphor here. I think that people are like gushers where they're one flavor on the outside, but when you apply pressure, they sometimes are a sour flavor and they might be a sweet flavor, but you don't know until you apply that pressure because a lot of times you may think that you're one way and then you encounter an obstacle and all of a sudden you realize, no, what's really my character at the core of who I am is anger, is actually a lot of gratitude. Uh, is a lot of sadness or complete joy, no matter what's going on. But you don't know until you apply that pressure. So it sounds like, you know, snapping your femur uh, was definitely applying that pressure <laughs> at that point in your life. For sure, for sure. And then, you know, the, only, the other, I guess, um, moment in my life where, like, things changed for me was having kids, and I'm sure you can relate to this as well, um, you know, I had my first child before I kind of had this evolution in my research into, you know, mindset and performance. And so um, before she was born, my husband and I were like, we would do that thing at, you know, 6 p.m. We'd call each other, even though, you know, we worked across the base or whatever. We'd call each other and be like, are you done yet? No, I could work for another hour. Okay, I could work for another hour. Like, all right, we'll meet at home, like, say, 7.30, 8 o'clock. And we'd work late because yeah. you could. You could, right? Like there was nothing to get home for and to put in the hustle. And we knew that the military valued the hours you put in. And so, you know, we were proving that we were committed. And um, and then once like our daughter arrived, like two things changed for me. One was that desire to like always be at work, right? And not be as efficient in the way that I got my work done, right? Like, so that was an impetus to kind of changing my thought process around, you know, work hours. Mm -hmm. um, I wanted to still do the same quality work, but in less time. Um, that was kind of, you know, like that motivation. And then the other thing it brought me was, you know, I, I talk a lot about like the storytelling and the cognitive elaboration. And while I didn't have like my full journey with getting awareness and control of that until later, one thing my daughter did for me is that I realized that I had someone that would love me unconditionally, no matter what happened that day, right? Like I could have had a really crappy flight, like not my best landings, not my best like experience or whatever. Yeah. I would come home and she would just light up to see me. And it didn't matter. Like if I scored poorly on a test or I failed at something that day, like she was still going to love me and wanted to see me and was excited to be with me no matter what. And that perspective really changed my relation, my personal and professional relationships and how like it could all be, it could all come together. I'm the same person at home as I am at work. And I didn't have to have these two lives. I needed to like kind of integrate them a little bit better um, to, to kind of start on that pathway toward happiness in my daily life. I can definitely relate <laughs> to coming home and daddy you know? and all I can think is all the failures that I had throughout the day as a human being and <laughs> whatever I did wrong and that sort of thing I'm definitely a pro 
perfectionist at heart, which is, it's an odd thing because I hold the perfectionism over myself, but I don't necessarily project it onto other people. I have a lot of forgiveness for other people, but not myself. But then my three-year-old comes running at me and she just doesn't care at all what I did or didn't do. And she just wants me there, you know? So that's it's amazing, that's, right? It's what? It's amazing. Like that. Oh, absolutely. How it flips your perspective on what's important in life. And I mean, even to this day, like I still, because I'm, I'm a highly anxious, highly competitive type person, for a recovering <laughs> perfectionist as well. Like I still struggle with it in moments. And then, you know, my kids actually know now because I've taught them a lot with mindfulness. I've taught them a lot with mindset and um, messaging, confidence building, positive self-talk, all those kinds of things. And my daughter, she'll sense it and she'll just like, you know, like come to me, we'll look eye to eye and we'll take like a deep breath together. And she'll just say something like, mom, you're doing great. Like you're, you're, you're awesome. Like you're, and, and those moments, right? Like that's all I need to hear. Right. Okay. I'm, everything's going to be okay. Or sometimes when I'm driving and I get, you know, that road rage, my son will be in the backseat. He's like, mom. I don't know what you're talking about at all. <laughs> like no one, no one on this, like yeah. listening right now ever deals with that, but no, son will be in the backseat and he's like, mom, two deep breaths, two deep breaths. And then we all take two deep breaths together. And so like your kids pay attention to these things and they can be a value for all of us, like on a day, the day to day. I would actually like to give you some credit because um, ever since I first heard you talk, I've had it in the back of my mind of, I want my kids to see how I handle things. And I want them to see how I process anger, especially because I, I feel like a lot of times it's either parents totally lash out or they go and hide. And in either case, that's not the example you really want to set. And so there've been times where Charlotte has 100% made me very angry. Uh, because just consistently disobeying and consistently being defiant and doing things that she knows that she needs to be doing. And I just look at her and I say, Charlotte, daddy is very angry right now. I need one minute. I'm going to set a timer and you can sit with me or you can go in the other room or whatever. And I'm just going to calm down. I'm going to take some deep breaths and close my eyes. Please don't talk to me until the timer's done. And she'll, she'll, every time I've done this, she'll come over and sit by me and just put her little arm behind my back and just go, it's okay, daddy. And she watches me just breathe. And sometimes I'm clenching my fists because I, I want to throw something, but I know that's not the way to handle it. So I'm just sitting there just, and at the end, then Charlotte gives me a big hug. And I love that she watched me walk through that. And so I'd love to give you the credit because you and your talk of just how you center yourself and you get yourself back on the right footing is where I got that idea from. And I don't remember if you said something specifically like let your kids watch, but you were where I got the idea from. Speaking of kids, uh, kind of on the same vein, I know that you do, I don't know if it's a full day or an hour or what, but you do no technology, I guess, days on occasion. Where did that come from? How did it start? And what benefits have you experienced from that? Because I know we have parents that listen to this podcast and they probably had that idea, but they don't want to pull the trigger, you know, because technology distracts the kids and I can have an easier day. So what have you experienced with doing that? Well, I've learned, I like to use the term healthy relationship with digital. That. <laughs> because it's really impractical to think that, 
you're just going to completely get rid of your technology and your devices and all those things because they do provide a lot of goodness in our lives mm -hmm. and ease and um, functionality for things that we need to do. Um, so it's how do you develop a healthy relationship where you're not completely dependent on it? And I don't always do this right. Um, and that's why I think, you know, my husband and I have tried to do um, a really good job of instilling in our children this idea of grounding and being outside. Um, I mean, we live in Utah, so we're really lucky because no matter the time of year, we have an outdoor playground. Um, and we love skiing and we love mountain biking and hiking and paddleboarding and kayaking and being, you know, out on the water. And so, you know, I would say almost every day we're doing something outside, um, no matter the time of year. And so I think that's, that's something that when we do that, we're taking in our oxygen. We, you know, I use the hashtag oxygen for outdoor time. We're being present, we're being mindful. And so that's more of like across each day, our outdoor activity, we try to kind of like disengage from our digital devices. Um, but, you know, I do a lot of, um, you know, I did, I started actually as a squadron commander where I had no email Friday. Like that was one of the policies that I had started when I was a leader because I felt like, you know, no, no meetings on Fridays, no um, emails on Fridays, just because we, we stopped connecting as human beings. Mm -hmm. right? Instead of talking face to face, you were just emailing people all day. And, and then you know, quarantine happened. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, I can't, I don't want to live, you know, like, and I don't want to set the example for the rest of the 400 people that I was leading that it's okay to leave behind a desk. So I created that policy, um, no email Friday. And then that kind of just turned into after I was done being a commander, you know, trying to find ways for my own family to connect. So a lot of times we do digital detoxes on Saturdays um, because you know we'd be working all week and then Saturday was a way to just be outdoors, be engaging. Um, and so, yeah, so we do that a lot or we disconnect, we'll go camping or, um, you know, I try to not be as more present in person and less on my phone. I still am not the best at it. I mean, it's really hard too when most businesses today are run by your impact on social media and your presence in those oh, digital yeah. environments. Definitely. Um, so that's why I say healthy relationship uh, with it. I love that you're doing that with your family. How are you encouraging? Oh, go ahead. Yeah, one, one real quick thing. The, the most important thing around digital technology is awareness. I think because, you know, many times, you know, like you scroll through Facebook and then all of a sudden you're like, holy crap, 45 minutes, right? I've been scrolling. And I didn't, it's like I a time warp. <laughs> you just disappear for a little while. <laughs> it is. And so the, the greatest thing or the greatest skill set that I love to, to hopefully help people with and even with my own children is awareness around it. And I, and I knew that it was working when like my daughter will come to me. She's 13. She'll come to me every once in a while and just be like, mom, you need to put more limits on my phone because she realizes how addicting they are and she realizes yeah, yeah. how much time she's wasting. And so if I can just build that awareness in her, because that's what I think most of us don't have, right? We don't realize the impact yeah. we're having on our lives or how much time we're wasting or how much time we're spending. And so we just keep doing it because it is very addictive. And so like, if you can just create, you know, this awareness in your children so that they're coming to you saying, Hey, this is, 
taking up too much of my time or I need to delete this app because, you know, whenever I have a free moment, I just hop on the app and then, you know, I'm in that time warp. So, um, yeah, so that's, and that's really where like mindfulness comes in because mindfulness increases your ability to be self-aware versus mind wandering and distracted. Yeah, that's something we have to try to even teach our three-year-old, our three-nager, as I call her, <laughs> because she has no self-awareness. She has no spatial awareness half the time. She'll nearly knock over her sister or run into a dog, run into the couch, whatever. But having that awareness of, okay, I've been on my tablet for too long, or I've been, we, we have tickets uh, for TV shows, and when she runs out of tickets, she's done. She That's all she gets. And then you got to go do something creative. You can go outside just in your underwear if you really want to. Whatever it takes, just get outside. So I, I love that you are trying to still, in, still instill those guidelines, those guide rails, and then manage those and keep them consistent. Because I think that uh, internally as adults, we think they're always there when they're not. And they have to be built into you, usually from your parents. Yeah, for sure. So with all that being said, with all the technology and stuff, in other ways, how are you encouraging your kids and helping them navigate life during a certain time of quarantine or just in general as they're growing up? What are some, as I would call it, bold lines, non-negotiable, like these are the guide rails that I'm putting on your life. What are those between you and Chris? Yeah, I would say the with respect to the current situation with COVID-19 and the uncertainty we face, there are two things that I'm trying to instill in myself and my children to kind of get through this. And the first one is to focus on what you can control versus what you can't control. Um, so I'm trying to teach them that the number one thing we have control on, control of as human beings is our internal environment. Um, <laughs> storytelling, right? The catastrophizing and ruminating and worry and our perception of stress. Um, and so I try to t help them understand that there are things we, you know, we try to control our external environment and that is really not within our span of control. And so we have conversations about that all the time. Like every time they get upset, you know, you know we have, we kind of step back and say, well, what is within our control in this moment? And many times we'll get, you know, like as you kind of dive down into like the, the nitty gritty of what's stressing them out or causing them discomfort, we realize, well, we have control over our attitude. You know, we have our control over our thoughts and our emotions and, um, you know, how we're motivating ourselves in this moment. And so that's really what one of the ways that I use for myself and for my family to kind of get through these um, difficult uh, times. And then the other thing is, is how do you think about uncertainty? Like we, we're we in these air quote, right, uncertain times, but I would say that there is a bit of lack of planning right now. Like we can't necessarily plan a vacation, you know, that we know is definitely gonna go in August or whatever because of the current situation. But most of life is uncertain. Like you really don't know what's gonna unfold for you every single day, right? Like you try to plan but there's always uncertainty. It just seems to be like right now we're all in this narrative that there's this huge amount of uncertainty and we're victims to this environment. And so I try to help myself and my kids deal with the fact that 
uncertainty spurs creativity. Uncertainty is where we get innovation. Uncertainty mm-hmm. is a part of life. And so we shouldn't be victimized by the position we're in. We can actually change our mindset and see this in a different way as an opportunity versus like a threat or a challenge. And, um, you know, like for us, my husband was retiring. We had this big plan of traveling the world this year. <laughs> Actually, that was, it's the last year before my daughter starts high school. We're living in a rental while we're building a house. And so it was just a really good opportunity to kind of come and go with these vacations and to experience different things. And that obviously has changed. And instead of seeing it as, oh my gosh, this is the worst thing in the in the world because this was our opportunity and it's not going to happen now. You know, we flipped it and now we bought a motorhome, like a trailer. <laughs> and we're, we're like, well, we'll go see this country. Yeah. Soon enough it'll happen. Yeah, we may not get to see the world this year, but we'll get to see a lot of what this country has to offer and camping and family time and outdoor stuff that we like to do. So, um, you know, how you really, you know, focus on what you can control and then how you see um, uncertainty and risk-taking and and all those things that come with um, just life in general, you know, are real talking points that we use with our family today. And then um, on top of that, we focus on confidence building. Um, I would say, and this is something that I teach in a lot of my workshops and especially it's a big pillar inside the Warrior's Edge program that we teach because confidence only comes from one place and that's credible self-talk and you know so like whether my daughter is playing lacrosse or she's you know on her mountain bike trying to get up a steep hill or we're skiing with my son or you know whatever skill set it is you know I have a, a you know I work with my children I work with myself too the right language, having the right attitude in those moments and helping to develop confidence in the journey and the process and knowing that failure, right, is a part of learning and growth and how they all kind of fit together. And so we have these confidence mantras that we use in our family that my daughter will even use as she's mountain biking up a hill. And just yesterday we were at a mountain biking team ride And she went up with her team and I stayed down with my son, you know, on a a different trail. And when she came back down, she was like, you know, mom, I wanted to give up and I didn't want, you know, it was too hard for me. The moment was too big. And I just kept telling myself I can do difficult things. And I just like snapped my, you know, like I was like, I can do difficult things. Like this is not too big for me. And then she's like, I made it up the hill and I was so proud of myself. (laughs) (laughs) So that's kind of what we we also work on. Um, <laughs> I'm laughing because, for one, my youngest is squealing with pure joy, which is what her name means. Um, but squealing with pure joy, there you go. Because <laughs> she keeps seeing her puppy and or her ball is what Elizabeth's telling me. But I'm laughing because while your daughter is experiencing, you know, a mountain biking trail on a big hill and all this, I'm thinking of just yesterday how elated Charlotte was to figure out how she could reach for something with her broom and and get her stuffed puppy back. And so I was walking her through that and I said, listen, I'm going to walk you through this and then you do it. And I, I helped her figure out how to do that. And it, I didn't have to say anything when she got the puppy. She freaked. She, mommy, mommy, guess what I just did? You know, and was very um, ecstatic and confident. Like, 
I did it, you know. So where your kid is attacking the actual mountain, I'm dealing with the stuffed puppy in a broom. But, you know, it's it's all relatable. <laughs> it's all the same, right? Like it's empowerment and yep. confidence building. And like the only way you get confidence is by proving you've done hard things before. You right. know what I mean? Like, right. and that you can do things on your own. And so if you're, if you're doing everything for your kid all the time, they're never going to, going to develop that. And even as a leader, you know, one thing like my no email Friday was a empowerment and confidence tool because on Fridays, everyone had to think, Oh shoot. Like if I can't email the leadership in my squadron because no one's on email. So now I have to really think, do I want to call them or go find them to get them to answer my question or help me with this problem? Or do I just want to do it myself? And most of the time people would solve their own problems. And then by the time I got to my email, everything was like uh, already done. We could say OBE, right? Overcome by events. But the key was, the key to this is that on Monday morning, I couldn't lambaste them all for the choices they made, right? Like I couldn't be like, well, you made bad choices and that was all. Because then they won't try again. They'll never try, exactly. Now you could say, what did we learn from this? This probably wasn't the best choice. So what did we learn and how could we do it better next time? But getting angry and saying you did it wrong and and that wasn't the right choice is not gonna help anyone build confidence to try again. So I feel like we're important skill set. I feel like we're diverting off topic, but it's a very good point to be talking about nonetheless, because a lot of times people would respond and just say, you idiot. Why did you think to do that? And one of the things that Elizabeth and I try to do is address the choice, not the character. Yeah. And address the situation and not, not attack Charlotte's identity. So instead of saying like, what the heck, why would you do that? That kind of thing. We say, Charlotte, was that a good choice? You know, did you think that was, well, I thought that I would do this and then it spilled, you know? Yeah. It's like, okay, so next time, what can you do? Watch where the cup is. Make sure you don't knock it over. That sort of thing. Kind of a quick question before we move into the professional uh, side of things, even though they're intertwined. So there's no like completely separating personal and professional with uh chris and you i know supporting um each other is really big in our marriage how has chris and well i guess both of you have y'all supported each other throughout your careers is there any like one example you can point to or or one underlining guardrail that you say this this is what has kept us consistent throughout the 20 plus years that we were in the military and now as we move into this next chapter of life I think clear communication is probably the most important aspect of our marriage that has helped both of us be successful. Um, You know, there's a give and take for, for our careers. Um, Sometimes his career has led, sometimes my career has led, but we were always very clear in our communication around that. Um, So that neither one of us would ever feel, uh, you know, like negative emotions tied to a decision we made and that we didn't have, you know, our full say. Um, And so I think that's been a big part of it. You know, I have a very, I mean, well, obviously I think he's a pretty great husband, Um, (laughs) but it takes a certain type of marriage for both people to be professionally successful. It really does. And, And then also to have kids, like I've never felt like, it wasn't a partnership with 
the duties with our, with our children. And, you know, um, Chris would go home from work if we had a sick kid just as many times as I would, you know, and I had to deploy when our daughter was like 15 months old and he had to deal with it. Now we deal with it in different ways. Like I had literally set out. So here's, here's an interesting example with respect to childcare. (laughs) I had literally said I was going to be gone. Actually, this was, this was even before I deployed. So I went on this three week trip before um, I deployed and I had literally set out three weeks worth of outfits for our daughter. Cause I was like, I don't want her in the same clothes every day. Cause I know that's probably what my husband would do. So like, here's all the outfits. Here's the shoes that match with them. Like I made this like spreadsheet kind of thing. I got everything. You sound like Elizabeth. <laughs> here's yeah. everything for these days. Yeah. I'm like, just to make sure like she's, she's taking care of blah, blah, blah. I get home and she did wear like the same three outfits, like the entire time. He really didn't follow like any of the chart that I had or whatever, but I was like, she's alive. <laughs> she's <Yeah. messy. laughs> He just does it a different way, but he does it and he doesn't complain. And he wasn't like, you know, calling me every two seconds. Like, what do I do here? What do I do there? Like, she's not doing this. She's, I mean, he just did it. And, um, throughout our careers, you know, like even our last assignment, my last assignment in the Air Force, I traveled a lot and there never was like this asking him permission. Like, can I go on this trip or can I do this? It was always like, Hey, I've got to do this. And how are we going to make this work? And, you know, he leaves and I leave and we adjust. And I think that's, what's been the, the biggest benefit, um, of us each being able to pursue our individual careers is that it's always been a partnership and um, yeah. And so, and we've always clearly communicated on, you know, our career intentions and where we want to go and what we want to do. And he's always my biggest supporter. Like I am a big creative person with big ideas. And so a lot of times, like sometimes the execution can be like, Oh yeah, those are just details. Like who needs to worry about details. And so sometimes he helps me navigate (laughs) through my creative energy and helps me with the details. Um, he's more detail oriented. He's an introvert. I'm an extrovert. Um, and so I think, you know, all those things kind of just work together in a great partnership. That's awesome. Whenever I propose to Elizabeth, I ask her to be my teammate for life. So that theme has kind of continued on as we've gone through all sorts of ups and downs that this episode is not the place for that. I've already talked about it in another episode, but um, communication is definitely key. And we even did an episode about essentially communication. Even though the words you're saying mean one thing in your head, doesn't mean the same thing in Chris's head. And then over years of marriage, you figure out, okay, if I say this, she's going to think that I was actually talking about something else. So I have to make sure I'm speaking in terms Elizabeth will interpret in the way that I actually meant them. And I yeah. think over the years of marriage, you start to develop that kind of communication. So communication goes deeper than just talking about it. You have to understand how the other person's going to interpret everything you're saying. Yes. That's great. I want to now kind of transition a little bit more towards the professional and in the, the vein of my, my podcast, I always like to start with the personal, everything we've just been talking about, because people may look at your professional career and just think, oh my gosh, she's incredible. She's doing all these amazing things. And I think what they miss out on is the encouragement that you're, you're a mom, you're a wife, you're an individual, you grew up against multiple people saying no to you along the way, and yet you still overcame. And I don't want to miss out on any of those aspects and just jump straight to 
you know, Dr. Janelle McCauley, been on TED Talks and stuff like that. So I really appreciate everything you've talked to us about. Um, now I have a question, but I want to set it up a little bit. If people were to look at my resume, they may think that my professional pursuits have been kind of all over the board. However, I know the common thread through it all is that I just love people and helping them become the best versions of themselves. Being in the Air Force for you, then getting a master's in kinesiology, it seems like an interesting side quest almost, but I'd love to know what led to you pursuing that degree, what obstacles you might've overcome to attain it, and if you want, what led to your PhD in strategic health and human performance too, because I imagine there's also a common thread running through all of your endeavors. Um, Yeah, so I think the best way to understand, you know, just who I am is through like my priorities and my values. And and so I have four values and it's um, faith, family, service, and health. Like those are the four things that are most important to me. Um, And so those, you know, like that's kind of where I guide my decision-making process and what I choose to do or invest my time. Um, is around those service being probably like one of the the biggest parts of that. And I used to always say service in and out of uniform because I felt like, you know, I it was kind of a given. I was in the military, so obviously I was serving. But there's also ways to serve out of uniform, serve your family, serve your community, um, serve like the relationships that you're building around you. Um, and so I think that's probably a theme for me. Is how I can also like I, I my purpose statement is that I want to help people achieve peak performance with a focus on passion, purpose, and presence, and you know that's a way of serving as well. And so every morning when I wake up, like that's my purpose statement. That's you know what I aim for. And whether I'm doing things like this, you know, helping others through sharing information on podcasts or writing things or um, engaging with teams, uh, or I'm just working with my family right? Like I, I also have this idea of serving and helping others be better. Um, the real, the impetus for my journey toward like my initial master's degree in exercise physiology and then later my PhD really stemmed from that broken leg um, situation. Mm-hmm. You know, like I wanted to look at the strategic, like how you look at strategic health, how you, you know, use that to build um, high-performing people, right? Like the human weapon system. How do you make it most effective to execute high-stress missions? And, you know, that started with like the crisis I went through in my own journey and how it was awesome people that wanted to help me be better, you know, that helped me get to the, the place I am today. And so I kind of wanted to give back um, in that same way. So that's, was the initial drive to, and, and just an interest, right. And in, in this idea of, um, the human body and how to optimize it. And, um, but then like after I got my initial master's degree, cause I got that right after I graduated from the air force Academy, then I went off to pilot training and I flew planes for many years. And it wasn't until I kind of had my burnout point that I had this epiphany that what I was interested in personally and how I was developing my career professionally didn't need to be separate lanes. Mm-hmm. Like I kept telling myself, even though I'm really interested in health and wellness and yoga and those things like which were out of self necessity for my own journey and my own well-being, um, 
I didn't, you know, I kept saying, well, in 13 or in 10 years, when I retire from the Air Force, I can start focusing on those aspects of my passion. And it was like, I had this epiphany, like, wait, why can't I integrate these things that I'm passionate about into leadership and into the way I'm, you know, pursuing this military career? And so that's really when I started a nonprofit for military spouses. I, you know, got my yoga instructor's degree and I started giving yoga away for free to anyone, you know, on military bases. I started having conversations about nutrition in places that never happened before, like in these military um, settings. And that was really where I noticed the response from people because that was something that had been missing. Um, in most of our military careers, because we're always just so focused on the hustle. We're never focused on the self-care aspect of, of how to elongate and extend your ability to hustle for, for a whole career. Even as you talk about that, I'm thinking of things that Jocko Willink has said, which I know I had asked you before, have you ever met Jocko Willink? I think that y'all would actually link up pretty well and I'll, I'll probably shoot him a tweet so you should have Janelle McCauley on there um, on his podcast. But he's talked about that mental toughness because that's a huge factor in being a Navy SEAL. And he's, the, the thing is when people think of a Navy SEAL, they think of what you're talking about of just go, 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 constantly be grinding, constantly be getting after it. But then what he is saying is some of what you're saying where you have to make sure you have the right fuel regardless of your situation you have to have the right mindset you have to make sure that you're you're taking care of yourself even though a navy seal may have an extreme of what taking care of yourself looks like there's still that facet of what they're doing what they're trying to accomplish so i think that's really cool that you're talking about it in your context he's talked about it in his context i talk about it in my own context uh here at home of just saying here are the things i need to do to recharge and be 100 percent for elizabeth for the girls for myself so that i can keep pouring out but if i have nothing in my bucket i can't there's nothing to pour out you know right um i'm gonna jump to the mindfulness of everything i know that when i say mindfulness typically there's two sides of it so one, I'll kind of break these up. One would be being mindful of others' thoughts, feelings, life situations. And two, being mindful of yourself and what you're going through and how you're truly handling situations you're involved in. Now, as the expert, how do you uh, view mindfulness when you're discussing it? What are you speaking to? Either of those, one or the other, or both, or something completely different? So I see mindfulness as a way to train yourself, right? It's like mental push-ups. It's mental exercise to cultivate awareness and presence. And then when you build awareness and presence, then you get to be more attentive and more mindful of other people's thoughts, feelings, and emotions, mm -hmm. your own thoughts, feelings, and emotions, right? Exactly like what you just said. Um, so I just back it up one more step that, you know, mindfulness is a way to train your mind to build awareness and presence. Mm -hmm. um, and I like to think of it as, you know, those mental push-ups that are necessary, just like we would do physical push-ups to build our physical strength, the mindfulness builds our mental strength. And um, it's it's extremely necessary for, for all of us. And 
I think that it's just an underrated skill set right now. Um, it is not new. It is not something that I have created, nor even John Kabat-Zinn, who is like known as like the father of modern mindfulness. It is rooted in ancient traditions of what human beings have been doing for centuries. We just, in our highly chaotic and busy and competitive stress world, um, we've lost our connection to it. And we're seeing, right, like we're seeing all of the negative um, aspects to that. Number one is a lack of emotional regulation. We have a bunch of human beings in a politically charged environment that make emotional outbursts, emotional overreactions to things that are stimulating them within, within their environment. And so I think that's one of the, like, that's one of the cause or the one of the um, results, right, of a bunch of human beings that can't regulate their emotions because they can't cultivate presence and awareness. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so that's why it's so vitally important, especially today and how we interact together as human beings. Um, and so that's also, you know, like there's two aspects of it. There's the well-being and just rational decision-making side of it. And then there's also the high performance side of it. Like if you can't live present and aware, just when stress is like, or what we would say in the air crew world, like when ground speed is zero, how are you going to be able to, to develop, you know, and build a high performance space when pressure is applied, right? Like it's going to be extremely difficult, just like you were saying with the gushers, right? Like you see who you really are when pressure is applied. I think you have to do this work. The, these mindful push-ups build this mental strength before pressure is applied right. so that when you're in those moments, you can be, you know, more rational than emotional. You can make split second decisions when lives are on the line and, you know, be confident with them. You, you know, can understand the physiology, the stress response that's occurring where, you know, you get sweaty palms, your heart starts racing and you can use those physiological um, symptoms on the eustress side of the stress curve to help you perform better instead of letting your whole body fall into distress where bad decision-making poor performance results. Um, so it all really starts with, can you do the work ahead of time to build presence and awareness so that you can both be mindful of your own reactions to the environment as well as others? That's that great. <laughs> yeah, no, it does. You just kind of cut away the um, extraneous parts and got it to its core root of just the awareness, which you've said multiple times. And even as a teacher, you got to say things multiple times before people understand what you're saying. Uh, so I, I appreciate that. I know that this whole conversation stemmed from one of my listeners actually asking if we could do a podcast about mindfulness and how do we address it and that sort of thing. Um, so to know that it's more about being aware of people around you, your surroundings, uh, your environment, that sort of thing. And then also being aware of what's happening internally and being able to communicate that. I know that's been a huge thing for me going to counseling. I used to think that counseling was, well, if something's wrong, I'll go to counseling. And then I started realizing things have been wrong multiple times and I haven't gone to counseling. So I should probably go to counseling. Um, but what's been great about that is that it's created this awareness inside of me that I didn't previously have. And then it's also given me language to then explain to somebody like my wife, who is, I call it the rule of proximity. She's first in line of fire if I blow up. 
just because she's so close to me. Her proximity to me means that she's going to get hit first and probably the worst if something happens to me. So being able to communicate before something happens, which is another thing you mentioned, you got to have that practice in place, that plan in place before the catastrophe happens, right? That's a, I feel like that's a military thing. You'll probably have your own terminology for it. But you don't wait for something to occur to have a plan for it. You plan ahead. So why do you do the opposite in your personal life? You know, you wait for yourself to blow up and then all of a sudden you figure out how to talk about it. No, you got to be able to talk about it ahead of time. Exactly. I've noticed in a handful of your interviews and talks that you mentioned having grit. Angela Duckworth is arguably the name most associated with grit because she wrote a book about it. And as yours, you're the expert in mindfulness, in my opinion. You know, you mentioned somebody being the father of mindfulness. I'd say maybe you're the mother of mindfulness in that case. <laughs> I'm starting that now. That's going to be the trend here. I'm starting, <laughs> starting right here. How do you see the two, grit and mindfulness, intertwining together and complementing each other? Again, you've mentioned this on other podcasts, TED Talk, I think, having that grit. How do you see those two working hand in hand? Well, I think the the gap that exists today is that we don't train mental skills. And mindfulness and grit are both mental skills that I think can be trained. Right? Especially, and this is especially important for individuals who operate in high-stress environments. And that's where the gap exists, right? You can be a paramedic and never train mindset skills. You can be a police officer and never train mindset skills. A military operator. Like people who are expected. Parent, <laughs> right? Because, high school environments with with what a parent deals with and we're never trained how like the mindset skills so how so that's that's the first thing like that's where the gap exists and the awareness around that these things can be trained and improved um in our lives now the way that mindfulness and grit work together is mindfulness i think is the foundational mental skill set that we all need to start with because if you don't have awareness and presence no matter what other things I try to train, they're not going to be as effective. And this is where, you know, my, my constant struggle with training programs and academic programs, whether it's within the military or, you know, really even in, in schools um, today, is that they don't understand that when you teach a skill like mindfulness from the beginning, everything else you teach them is going to be more retained. They're going to be more focused they're going to be more attentive to the to that training environment when you do mindfulness and cultivate presence and awareness first. But we don't do that, right? Like there are no training programs that start with mindfulness right now. <laughs> like it may be added somewhere like as a little tiny piece of, oh, let's just introduce you to mindfulness and here's a skill set that may be helpful for you, maybe not. Like try it out. Right. But if we really realize what it was providing for the human being, it would be taught first before anything else is taught. I agree. Right? So that's why, like in the Warrior's Edge program, we one of our core pillars is mindfulness, and that's why I focus on training that first because when you train that, you get rid of the cognitive elaboration and storytelling. You get you know rid of the mind-wandering and distraction. You're more focused, and so I can train you on a whole host of other mental skill sets that are now going to be more productive and effective in your everyday life. So... I see mindfulness as the foundational skill set, and then grit is another aspect of mindset that you can train on top of it. But with grit, if you're not present, you're not going to be 
really developing those gritty, you know, because grit is, you know, uh, a long-term commitment, right, or, or a passion and present or passion and perseverance toward long-term goals. And if you don't have the presence to really persevere in those moments, right, grit is not going to be as effectively trained. Like that's kind of how I see it. The other aspect that we know about grit is that it, if you pair an ungritty person with a gritty person, the gritty person will bring the other one up, right? Like, like, they'll, oh, really? yeah, they'll rise to the occasion. Actually, Pete Carroll has been testing this out for a while. Like initially it was thought you can't train grit. Initially it was even Angela Duckworth said that in the beginning and Pete called her out on it and said, wait a minute, I've been training grit. Like on the, on the NFL for a while. Like, Have you met my team? <laughs> yeah. And so she did. She came out there and she worked with their team and, and learned like, because she also, I think there was this prevailing thought, and I might be getting some of these details wrong, but I think there was this prevailing thought that when you paired someone who is gritty with someone who is not gritty, that the not gritty person would bring the other one down. But what Pete was actually finding is when he did that, the gritty person was bringing the other one up, right? That's awesome. And getting them to persevere longer for these, you know, these goals. And so, yeah, that's kind of how I see it fitting together. Like with most mindset, mindset skills as well, like how do you build trust? How do you build optimism, focus, um, control, commitment, like all of those things. Mindfulness has to be that first skill set because if you're not in the moment, you're not truly going to train those other aspects of mindset. Yeah, that's something I'm thinking of even as you're saying all of this is to the people who are listening right now, I'm going to talk to the audience. If you're listening right now and you're thinking, wait, this is all just mental stuff. Like I'm with Micah, like I'll go see a counselor when something's wrong. The trouble is I don't think you realize even for people who let's say lift weights, I, I go to the gym when I'm not dealing with COVID, um, but I go to the gym and I work out. But what you don't realize is that Think about the days when you don't really feel like working out, when you don't, your mindset is distracted by other things. You're probably not going to have as effective as a workout. So even start with that small example and think about if your mindset was in the right place, if you were um, mentally ready to go and tackle even that workout, you're going to have a more efficient workout. In the same way, if I have the mentality of, and this is a conscious exercise I have to do for myself, so it's it's not a hyperbole. It's not some random example. It's actual real life for me. There are days when I have to tell myself, I want my daughter to know she's loved first. Then we can deal with all the other whatever else happens. But today, I do not want to say something or do something that causes her to question if I love her. And that just mentally then helps me have a good footing to then go tackle what did you break now? You know, that kind of thing. Or why are you not wearing clothes? Like you're outside and you're completely naked. You're through yourself. Get back inside. Um, so different things like that. It helps me frame my mind in the right way to tackle whatever it is that I'm going to address for that day. Yeah, that's now, like a mindset routine. That's, that's exactly is. what you're describing. Yeah. And, and see, I wouldn't have that terminology if I didn't have conversations like this, if I wasn't in counseling, if I... I call it kind of just centering myself, which previously I thought that was more of like a spiritual term when really it's just the best term to use for what you're doing. You're trying to get yourself centered and standing on solid ground and not just jumping into the day thinking, I got this when you're not ready for it at all. Right. You mentioned the Warrior's Edge program and that was something I wanted to ask about. 
you, you and uh, Dr. Gervais both said we can train our body, our mind, and our craft, and those are the three things that you're trying to train. That's something that's been mentioned, I think, as um, maybe you can correct me if I'm wrong, either a main facet to the Warrior's Edge program or those are the pillars or something like that without getting into any copyright issues, of course. <laughs> but what exactly does that mean from your perspective or the Warrior's Edge perspective, training your body, mind, and craft? So one thing that Mike, Pete, and I are trying to change just culturally is an understanding around mental skills that they are not just like as you were just alluding to they're not just something you le you learn or you lean on when things are not going your way right it's not something to use to fix yourself i mean they can be right because if you do have issues you go to a counselor and or a right. psychologist and they're going to introduce you to a lot of the skill sets that we teach right. we're trying to change the narrative around it and say you can actually invest and train in these aspects to be better at what you do. It's a performance enhancing um, program. And these are performance enhancing skills to help you really be more of a badass at what you do. And if, and what we mean by body craft and, and mind, and I really learned that when I was researching, you know, my dissertation was how do you build the most, uh, most effective human weapon system to execute the military's high stress, high pressure mission. And when I met and learned from Mike, um, you know, as part of like that dissertation process, you know, he, he was the, I think the first one that I learned that from, like, you can only train three things. The human being can only train three, three things, their body. And we all get that. That's very understandable. You know, you lift weights, you run, you do these physical activities to improve your physical fitness. We also understand craft, right? Like I couldn't be a good pilot unless I trained to be a good pilot, right? And spent years of study um, to be an expert in that job description or whatever my career field was. And so people get those two. The military gets those two. We have significant amounts of training time set aside for body and craft. We do not value nor train our minds. It's just been a gap that has that exists and what we don't realize is in order to excel in high stress environments, you have to have the psychological flexibility and the mental strength to face adversity and challenge, know who you are at your foundation, live more present in order to be high performing. And really this all comes from, you know, a lot of uh, what Mike Gervais has studied is people who are the best in the world that push the, the potential or push the envelope on human potential and what you really find when you dive into that and I've studied right military operators and um, other cultures the ancient you know warriors what we found as a common theme for high-performing individuals is that they train their minds right because everybody's working hard on the world stage everybody's putting in the time for their craft putting in the time for their bodies and so what makes the difference is the people who invest in, in training their minds. And so we're trying to make that type of training more accessible to everyone. And that's really what Warrior's Edge is about. It's about flipping the narrative on these skills being 
you know, hey, you only need them when you need help to, hey, these are vital skills to improve your performance and you improve your ability to sustain your performance for the long term. And it's not just for crazy human beings who do crazy things. This is for everybody. Um, We all need this to be personally and professionally successful. And so we really took um, the research and everything that we teach is based on research and testing in alpha competitive environments. And so we've determined there are 16 principles of mindset that can be trained. And so it's, and it's not just this, you know, like life hack. We're not going to say, Hey, if you learn these 16 things, you're automatically going to be amazing. It's, Hey, we're going to introduce you to these 16 things that need to be trained on the daily to, yep. to, in order to achieve those levels of high performance. You can't just train it once and then be like, Oh, I'm going to be amazing. That's well, that's not- like saying the mind is a muscle. You, you have to train. You have to have that daily discipline. You do. You do. And it's hard because if it was easy, everyone would be emotionally regulated and high performing. Like, right. like we're not. We're stressed out. We're overwhelmed. We're like, you know, not able to handle the pressure of like the seventh game of the World Series, right? Like if every team had the mental skills to be their best in those high pressure moments, then, you know, like... It, like every, it would be highly, highly competitive. Like, but the thing is, is people blow it right under high pressure situations because they haven't built the mental skills or sometimes you need to blow it to then build the mental skills. Right. Oh, sure. I used to tell students, sorry, go ahead. No, I'm just saying it's all a process. Yeah. 100%. I used to tell my students and when I was a coach, my players, I would say you only fail if you fail to learn. So take whatever, you know, maybe in a football play, you didn't run the route right, or that's why you got tackled. Now let's learn from it. Right. I'm not going to berate you about running the wrong route. Other, co- other coaches would, but I'm not going to berate you about doing something wrong. I, I will, however, come down on you if you just act like nothing happened and you don't learn from it and you don't try to do better next time. Because to me, that was more important. That's a life skill that you have to carry the rest of your life saying, okay, clearly I did this wrong. I'm not going to beat myself up about it, but I will learn from it. And next time, do better. And that's something, even just language I use with Charlotte. Okay, that didn't work. We do better next time. Yeah, do better next time. I love that. that. You know, two two really important things that I I learned from Pete Carroll, um, just, you know, I'm always like, I, I think we're always learning from each other in this process of developing Warrior's Edge and executing it out in the field. Um, he, you know, like there was a big football game and, and like disappointing things that happened. And I remember asking him, like, how do you deal with your players? Like after that, because it must be hard not to get upset, you know, when they sure. make like big, huge mistake that like lost the game or whatever. And, and he's like, why would I get upset? Like, I just have a conversation with them. And I ask them, like, how did that work out for you? Right? Like, what, you know, how are you? Like, they're beating themselves up enough. Like, they don't need the coach to then, like, layer on top of Right? But what you can do is, like, help them through, like, the process of, like, how that worked out. Like, how how did that make them feel? Like, what did they learn from it? What could they could do differently next time? How could they do better? And it's the same thing with your kids, right? When they make a mistake, mm-hmm. you can berate them. And, and sometimes that's the initial reaction we all want to do. But I think the more important space is to ask them to, to figure out that process for themselves, you know, by asking the right questions and helping them understand, like, I don't 
like to feel this way after I make those types of choices. So now they're going to have awareness, right? Before they make that choice, they're going to remember how it made them feel um, so that they can hopefully uh, make a different decision. Um, so that was one thing I've, I've learned from Pete. And then the other thing is this idea of optimism. You know, he tries to instill in his team, like even if they're down, even if there's things like you don't dwell on the moments that got you there, you dwell or you focus on the next moment and you focus on the next moment with optimism. A, a thought process that like something good is going to happen. And so I don't know if you remember the game last year where they were um, in overtime with the 49ers and Russell Wilson threw, threw an interception. They were like, you know, inside the 10 and they were about to score. And then he throws an interception, right? And over, and everybody was like, oh my gosh, they've lost it. Now they're not going to win. And they came back to win it. But that takes, you know, mental skills on both the defense and the offense to say, the defense, like, we're going to stop them from scoring. So then we get another opportunity. And then the offense is saying, in the next opportunity, something good's going to happen. And that yeah. can be trained. Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, with Pete and the players, a lot of times as a coach, we refer to our players as our kids anyway. So I, I think that even though his players are full-grown men, the, the relationship is still somewhat the same. One of the cool psychological things that I think happens when you help someone else process in the way that you're explaining Pete does with his players and I do with Charlotte is that you you could view it as you're you're putting it all back on them and it's all your fault. You know, you screwed it up and it, that's not it at all. You're you're helping them take ownership in a positive way of by making them think a certain way. Okay, how did that make you feel? Because let's go ahead and address the elephant in the room, your feelings. How did that make you feel? I feel pretty crappy. I threw an interception. Okay. So how did that come about? What did you see? And you get them, you give them the script to follow in their own heads so that next time, or in this case, that exact example, I'm sure Russell Wilson's like, okay, that sucked. (laughs) But here's what, what, what went wrong, and here's how I can avoid that next time. Here are the indicators if the defense, the cornerback goes this way, the safety goes this way. Here's what I can look for that time. And then he doesn't throw another interception. You know, So I love that internal dialogue that Pete is creating inside of his players, and I think that a lot of people can learn from that. How did you even meet Dr. Gervais and Pete Carroll? Because that's kind of a – just out of nowhere, you know, yeah, I work with Pete Carroll. So for those of us listening, how did you even meet them now that you're creating Warriors Edge together? Yeah, it's uh, an interesting story. I'll try to make it brief. Um, You know, people, especially five, 10 years ago, the mindfulness movement was rather small. And so through, you know, like those of us that have been leading, I guess you could say in some aspect of integrating mindfulness into the culture of whether like, you know, I was doing it in the Air Force, Mike was doing it with elite athletes, Pete was doing it with the NFL and the Seahawks. Um, you know, the circles are, are fairly small. So I actually met Mike at a mindfulness conference, um, you know, through uh, Dr. Amishi Ja, who's one of the leading researchers at the University of Miami in the high stress occupation space with respect to mindfulness. So I met Mike and I was a sitting, my, a sitting squadron commander, you know, integrating mindfulness into my day-to-day life as a leader and into the culture of our organization. And he was like, oh my gosh, you should be on my podcast. So I was a guest on his podcast. And one thing that Mike and I really realized is there's, there's a couple different schools of thought with respect to how 
you implement mindfulness. There are a lot of researchers out there. There are a lot of people out there who think there's a particular dosing of training that needs to happen before mindfulness is effective as a resource for people. Mike and I kind of have a different perspective because we use it in a different environment, right? With people who, number one, don't have time for like an eight-hour mindfulness training program, or they, you know, don't have the patience to sit through this idea of like, oh, like, you know, hold each other's hands, let's meditate, let's like, you know, be self-forgiving and gratitude, all those things that are so valuable to mindfulness, but sometimes are a hard sell for certain individuals. Oh, yeah. so Mike and I bonded over this idea that just do it, right? You just, you just don't give them a choice, really. You just say, this is mindfulness, or I'm going to introduce you to this. Now I'm going to create opportunities in your day to, to start habit patterns around it. And you just dive into it. And I think that um, that was something that he was finding effective with his work with athletes. That was something I was finding effective with my work in the military, um, is stop talking about it and just get to the work, um, get to the training. And so after we had the podcast and kind of share, shared this common um, uh, attitude toward the implementation of mindfulness, you know, we started, we kept in contact, we started brainstorming on different ideas. And, and then when I realized the military needed more than just like my consulting, right? They needed something more tangible to scale. Uh, we created Warrior's Edge to offer that to other leaders. With that in mind, the, the tangible side of things, what are some ways, as briefly as you can share, I know we're running out of time here, but just to give somebody a tangible way, maybe they're listening to everything that you're saying and thinking, I need this, so what do I do? Just close my eyes, cross my fingers, and take a deep breath? What What is at least one tangible way that somebody starting today, listening to this podcast, maybe driving in their car, sitting at home, working out, what's a tangible way that somebody can practice and start to implement just that awareness that you're talking about with mindfulness. Yeah. I, well, I'll give like two ideas. So the first is just integrating a mindful minute and really noticing and focusing on mental pushups, like treating it as a mental exercise for yourself. Um, and so it only takes a minute, like, right. Start, start small and you just take deep breaths. And I want you, when your foot, when you're taking the deep breaths, to focus on a particular sensation of your breathing. Because sometimes, right, breath can be rather nebulous, right? Like, what am, what am I actually paying attention to? But I want you to say, I'm gonna take deep breaths for one straight minute, and I'm just gonna focus on the sensations I'm feeling around the air going in and out of my nose. Now, in the span of that minute, you will get distracted, right? Everybody will. So it's about catching yourself in that distraction and then bringing your attention right back to the sensation of the air going in and out of your nostrils. And every time you get distracted and then focus your attention back, that is a mental push-up, right? You're building your mental strength yeah. <laughs> to stay in the moment. And so maybe the first time you do a mindful minute, you do 60 push-ups. <laughs> maybe you do 30, maybe you do five, right? Like it all kind of depends, but it's kind of bringing and cultivating the awareness around those mental push-ups and then starting to do them more throughout your day. Right. Like maybe instead of just walking, parking close and walking into the grocery store, you park a little further and you focus on your breathing and being fully present in that moment as you walk to the grocery store. Maybe when you're sitting at a red light, 
instead of picking up your phone to check something, just take those deep breaths, focus on the sensation of your breathing. And so the no one ever checks their phone at a red light. Come on. (laughs) Oh, never. So like maybe you could cultivate these, you know, mindful minutes more throughout your day and, and it'll create the mental exercise you need as well as building more presence and awareness in your everyday life. And, you know, the other thing I like to tell people is think about your favorite activity, right? Like maybe it's fishing or it's hunting or it's skiing or it's running, right? Like think about your favorite activity, the thing that like fills your tank, right? Like when, when you go and do it. And I guarantee that there is some aspect of mindfulness tied to that activity because when you're doing something you love, you're close to what like some would call flow state, right? Like you're fully ingrained. And, 100%. And, I've read about this. Yeah. Right. This activity that all you're doing is paying attention to skiing down that mountain and feeling the mountain air and the taking in the deep breaths and taking in the views and, and the physical, right? Like you're feeling all the sensations being provided by that moment. That is mindfulness, right? The problem is that most of us treat those activities as a luxury, right? Like I only get to go on that one fishing trip, like one week a year and it's the best week of my life. And then I have to go back to work and I never get that feeling again. And what I want people to try to figure out is to capture those moments and those sensations and what they're feeling when they're enjoying those activities. And then remember that, right? Create muscle memory around it by doing their mindfulness practice on a day-to-day basis. And so that they can bring those same sensations and feelings into their everyday lives. I love that. The, the fact that, you know, it, it's a minute. It, it sounds like everything you've been talking about up to this moment has been like, oh, I've got to incorporate so much. And then, no, nah, dude, just 60 seconds. It's not that big of a deal. <laughs> and then with the flow state thing, I started thinking about, um, with for me, playing drums. I've played drums for gosh, 19 years now this year. And I don't really think about much else when I'm playing drums right. and, or when I'm drawing, I'm also an artist, but I remember one time, very quick story. I was drawing this bluebird on a limb and um, I didn't realize how much time had passed until I finished and I looked, looked outside and it was dark outside when it had been like 1 PM when I started, uh, I was at a coffee shop in college. And I felt like I had taken a nap because my body literally had relaxed and felt amazing and it was crazy. So then I looked up, what's the correlation there? And so the flow state that you're talking about is that when you're in that flow state, your your brain will actually start to rebuild your body as if you were taking a, a nap or you're sleeping in REM sleep, the same rebuilding process can occur. So the idea of freeing all distractions from your mind so that your brain can literally heal yourself rebuild the fact that we're talking about doing that in a conscious moment is is pretty incredible in my opinion as we wrap up go ahead oh it's just it's a pretty amazing what like how powerful the mind is but there's two sides Mm -hmm. to it right it's very powerful in this mental time travel and catastrophizing and you know storytelling (laughs) but it can also be so powerful when you tap into it and you train it to build the mental strength and presence definitely As I wrap up here, um, I always like to leave with some encouragement. And in your case, I think there's two aspects to encourage people. One would be 
as a husband of the Wonder Woman, you can see behind me, I've got the Wonder Woman on her side of the bed. It's actually a self-portrait of her. Uh, but as a husband to the Wonder Woman and the father of two girls, what encouragement do you have for those powerful women that are maybe being told no constantly, or maybe they have big ambitions, but they don't know how to tackle them. And then the second aspect of that, which could tie in for those in leadership or seeking to be in leadership, what encouragement do you have for those people? So women and specifically, and then people wanting to pursue leadership in some degree. So the first tip um, or, or recommendation I have fits with both. And it's starting a mindfulness practice to build that awareness and presence to stay out of the trap of FOPO, right? The fear of other people's opinions, because whether you're a female and I, and I don't think there's necessarily research to prove this, but um, you know, as a female myself and with a lot of, you know, female friends and peers, like I think that we tend to hold ourselves back more because of that fear of other people's opinions, because we devalue what we do, I think, as women many times. And we're afraid to ask for our full value with things. And so that's that all is built around a lack of confidence and a fear of other people's opinions. And so the way you get around that is through a mindfulness practice. Because when you're more present, you're not listening to the stories and the catastrophes you're creating inside your head that really have no root in reality. And this idea that someone won't value me because I'm a woman or I can't ask, like as a professional, I can't ask for that much money for something. Like, no, I would never. We tend to, especially as females, devalue our worth. And that I think all stems from this idea of other people's opinions of us or what we think they're thinking of us. And so that's where I think mindfulness comes into play. The same thing with leadership. If you want to be a bold and innovative leader, you have got to filter through the noise. And one thing I consult with many leaders on integrating mindfulness into um, their leadership. And people leave my seminars and leave training and they're like, oh my gosh, I'm going to start mindful minutes, right? Because I tell them, 20% of our attention is automatically lost when we allow cell phones into meetings. So why don't we keep cell phones out? Um, now you have 20% of everyone's attention more focused at the, at the task at hand. We know what mind wandering and distraction does. 50%, that's the, the statistic in the recent research, 50% of your waking moments, you are not paying attention to what's going on in front of you. You are mind wandering and distracted Unintentional. I feel so called out right now. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we all do it. But it's half your day. Half your day. It's like you read the page of a book and you get to the bottom and you think, I don't remember anything I just read. Like that <laughs> happens just in conversations. I don't remember what you just said to me. So that is an unintentional mind wandering and distracted space that our, you know, our, our brain goes to. And so to get control of that, to be more focused, mindfulness, right, is the skill to be more present. I will tell you, I teach people all of this stuff. They get excited about the mindful minutes. And then when I check in with them and say, how are those mindful minutes going? They say, well, I tried it once and it just didn't work with my team. And I was like, when I asked them, what do you mean you tried it once? They try it. They open, you know, instead of just saying, we're all going to take this mindful minute to have a cognitive preparation for our meetings so that we're all more focused and attentive. And everyone's like, oh, okay, that sounds reasonable. Then they do the mindful minute. They open their eyes in the middle of it and they look around and they see one dude in the corner that's not into it. 
that's rolling their eyes or that's like, oh my gosh, this is so dumb. I'm not even going to participate. And then inside their head, they say, everyone hates this. Everybody. Even though it's one of 25, everyone hates this. I'm just going to stop and I'm not going to do it. That is FOPO. That is a story you're telling yourself. And so instead of focusing on the 24 other people in the room that are actually going to benefit from it, and eventually that one guy may even, if you keep repetitively practicing it, will change, right? Or will have an experience where they need that in their lives. Instead of focusing on that, they focus on the one negative thing and then they stop doing it. And so that hinders our abilities to be, our ability to be an effective leader. So the first thing is you got to start with the mindfulness because I think it helps us get rid of the noise and the distraction. And then you've got to release this idea of other people's opinions, the catastrophes, right? I like to say the majority of the catastrophes you will experience in your lifetime are the ones you are going to create in your head. They will feel very real because that's how powerful the mind is, but they will not actually be happening to you. So that I think, whether you're a woman or whether you're, you know, a leader, that is what hinders our ability to be effective and as high performing to execute our full potential is the storytelling, the distractions, and the fear of other people's opinions. And mindfulness really is the skill set to, to help us get control of that. Well, I appreciate that encouragement. I appreciate you even being on this episode, taking time out of your day to, to talk to the people that listen and the people that need this. Uh, I needed the reminder for sure. Before you go, I'd love to know what organizations, we've mentioned some here, uh, what organizations are you involved in that you would like to mention? And also, how can my audience and myself best support what you're trying to do? Yes, great. So Warrior's Edge, if anyone's interested, um, if you're working in healthcare, first responder, um, law enforcement, military, government, the Warrior's Edge program is specifically designed for those populations. And you can go to the website is compete to create backslash Warrior's Edge. Um, or complete compete to create.org backslash warriors edge. You can check out more information about the program there and the work that Mike, Pete, and I are doing to help um, organizations thrive in high stress environments with mindset training. I'm also uh, on the board of Team Red, White, and Blue, which is a veterans focused organization that inspires physical activity, connection. Um, now we're integrating mental training into our programming. And so if there's any veterans out there, I highly encourage them to check out Team Red, White, and Blue and join um, our mission and be a part of our team. And then also I'm involved with uh, Veterans Path, um, which is another veteran service organization that focuses on integrating mindfulness into various aspects of a veteran's life. So um, we would love to partner with some other organizations out there that are uh, really involved and focused on helping veterans um, with their overall well-being. Um, And then lastly, I have a brand new website, JanelleMcCauley.com, where you can find out more about my personal work and some of the uh, things I've been involved in and what I could potentially do for your corporate team. Um, So all that information there. And then I'm on all the social media platforms. I love engaging with folks that listen to various um, podcasts that I'm on, and I would uh, love to answer any questions. They can reach out and DM me specifically um, or uh, just kind of follow me. I like to share kind of the, the latest cutting edge research in the spaces of human performance and um, really focus specifically on that mindset and hoping, hopefully ha- helping people set positive habit patterns um, for mental skills training in their lives. Perfect. And for those that are listening purely, could you just spell your name if they want to search you on social media? 
Yes, it's uh, J-A-N-N-E-L-L-M-A-C-A-U-L-A-Y. And then .com for the website. But uh, this has been so much fun, Micah. Thank you so much for having me. (laughs) Thank you for being on. I appreciate it. I I feel like there's plenty more that we could talk about. And I know I even had in my notes some examples of things I've tried to implement for my students in the past. But there's not enough time to just discuss all of it. I'm sure you've got plenty of examples in your world that would just support fully what we've been talking about. Even with the mindfulness, it sounds like the, the, over the course of time, it was, I have a kind of a feeling that this is the right thing to do. And then you tried it out and you're like, now I have evidence to prove it's the right thing to do. And then you start doing the scientific research and you're like, oh, this also backs up what I thought was the right thing to do. So for anybody that's listening and you have any doubts in your minds, I dare you to try it. Just, I dare you to just try the mindful minute and actually buy into it. It's 60 seconds. What, What do you have to lose other than 60 seconds of breathing? I feel like we don't normally even take a minute to breathe on our own, but that's just my opinion. So I dare you, if you're listening to this and you're like, yeah, that was a cool story. I mean, she sounds like a cool person. Just try it. <laughs> Just try it. Um, I can say from personal experience that it's definitely worth it. And I have, again, other examples that I don't have time to give that it definitely works. So I appreciate your time, Dr. McCauley. I hope that you have a wonderful day. And thank you for being on the show. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for listening to today's episode with Dr. Janelle McCauley. I hope that it was as engaging as I thought it was for sure. Um, I always enjoy getting to talk to her. Uh, It was great to just hear some of the background to her personal life that then led to things in her professional life. I know that she's not unique in that area. We all have our own stories that feed into our professional lives and what we like to do uh, as work or as a job or as a profession. She gets to do something that she loves day in and day out, even as you heard when people have told her no frequently. She pushed through, she showed some grit, and she got to where she wanted to go. What she thought could be possible is now possible. I wanted to make sure to follow up with a few websites that she mentioned, uh, as well as mention the book, again, Grit, The Power of Passion and Perseverance by Angela Duckworth. That is a, a book that was written by someone we mentioned here in this episode. If you want to get your copy of that, I will include the link in the description for you to just click on, go purchase that. If you use that link, you will be supporting the podcast. So I appreciate you in, in advance. Thank you for doing that. But here are the websites for Janelle and everything that she's a part of. If you want to visit just her site, it's her name as she spelled it out on the episode.com. That's J-A-N-N-E-L-L-M-A-C-A-U-L-A-Y.com. I'll include other links to Warrior's Edge. That's the competetocreate.org website that she mentioned. There's just an addition to that. It's forward slash Warrior's Edge. I'll include the link again for you to click that. Team Red, White, and Blue. You can go visit that organization. Again, a link will be in the description. Finally, Veterans Path. That's veteranspath.org. All of those are organizations that she's a part of or she supports in one way or another. I highly encourage you, if this episode had an impact on you, uh, support her by supporting these organizations. If you would like to have her come speak at one of your conferences, if you would like to have her come train your team at your company, then by all means, reach out to her through her site at JanelleMcCauley.com and get that scheduled ASAP because I know that it will be 100% worth your time and money. Um, Again, I appreciate everybody listening to this. If you don't mind, make sure to subscribe because I don't want you to miss out 
on everything else we have upcoming. We have some great uh, guests to interview in the coming weeks. So I hope that you will stick around for that, but make sure to subscribe so that you know when those new episodes are available. Last but not least, again, if you want to support this podcast, you can do that in a couple ways. One, anytime I link a book in the description, if you use that link to purchase that book or purchase whatever equipment I might've mentioned, that will support the podcast. You don't pay any extra. You just go buy the thing. And there you go. I think the grit book is only about $7 on Amazon. And then secondly, don't forget to get your free Audible trial at audibletrial.com forward slash MBP. That will actually give you a chance to listen to Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance for free because I know 100% it is on Audible because that's how I read the book. So definitely go check that out. Uh, Support yourself and support the podcast. Again, I appreciate you guys. Y'all are fantastic. Share away. Share with everybody. Connect on social media with me. That's at ActualMBP. You can do that on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter. Um, We are now live on Google Play. So I look forward to connecting to you. Just send me a follow request. I'm sure I'll follow you back. And I look forward to having conversations with interesting people in intentional ways and having you listen. Take care.